Uh, so welcome everyone to the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast Reboot. Um, I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and today we have the amazing Will Reynolds with us. Will, tell us a little bit about yourself because you do so many things, I feel I would pigeonhole you to just pick one. Horrible at, at talking about myself like that. Um, no, I run a, a digital marketing agency in Philly and uh, try to be a good dad and try to uh, do the right thing in our community. That's about what I'm up to. Oh, is that all? <laughs> so, so tell me, like, I always like kind of starting off um, at the at the thousand foot level. Like, like, what have you been thinking about lately? Huh. I've been thinking about a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the more interesting things that I've been thinking a lot about and kind of getting my own voice on is, uh, you know, I think with recent events that we've seen uh, in our in our country around. Uh, George Floyd and whatnot, and, you know, trying to unpack, like, why him? Like, why not Trayvon? Why not uh, Tamir Rice? Why not? So I'm like, I'm, I've been trying to unpack that. Like, wow, that's, what, why, why this guy? Like, what was it? We had video for all those guys. Tamir Rice got shot in the, by, as a 12-year-old in a park. So I'm constantly trying to figure that out. And I'm also trying to unpack, like, my own way of, like, making myself available to people. I'm getting hit up a lot by people who want to have conversations and a whole lot of really nice white guys were spending half their time with me being like, I know it's not your job to educate me. I'm like, well, then who the fuck's going to educate you, dog? Like, like if I can't go out here and say people need to understand these things and then when you go help me to understand, I'm like, not my job. Like that just doesn't feel right. So I've been trying to unpack a lot of mm-hmm. that crap on top of trying to deal with teaching my sons about this crap mm. and, and all that stuff. So, uh, and then worrying about COVID and trying to run a business and figuring out what the heck to, what the heck can we do for our team members? It's, it, it's, it's been a lot, but all good, all good things. To, it's nice to have the luxury of contemplating these things. Yeah. Right? There are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to put food on the table. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so what have you come up with as you try to unpack why George Floyd? Um, people couldn't distract themselves with their vacations and shit because uh, we were stuck in the house on COVID. So you had to watch that shit over and over again. You couldn't just flip through it quick and then move on. You had to kind of deal with those emotions and those feelings. And to me, I think that I had, you know who told me that though? Uh, like a 20 year old that I work with at HopeWorks that I just picked up the phone and was like chatting with. And it was like, why do you think people are so caring so much right now? And that's what I think it was he I think that's what he said to me. And I was like, oh, good point. So I'm just using his, his yeah, quote. Yeah. No, and that was, that was more or less my vibe too, right? Is that you've got COVID keeping people indoors. You've got a bunch of frustration already built up by the time you get to the summer. You've got you know, the ability, and this is something I find really interesting. You've got the ability to protest without taking off work, right? And I feel like that, right? Because... In other countries, you know, you know, notice like, you know, this is like Tuesday in France or Hong Kong, right? Like <laughs> this is like protest is like a state of mind there, right? But I, I found out like in, in countries like France, like you can get time off to protest, like no joke, <laughs> right? Like, like that, is a, that, is, that is a value that the government has decided is worth taking time off for, right? So to say, hey, guess what? We can go protest these things in a way where like, hey, I'm not taking time off work because I ain't got no work. Like, I feel like that was another part of the perfect storm that allowed people to say, hey, we're here all week. 
Yeah, that, well, that's interesting, man. The other thing that tripped me out was how many white people were out there, man. Like, yeah. I mean, that was trippy to me. Like, yeah. like, I've been in my fair share of protests. And I'm like, wait, I, I, so one time when those people got um, blocked in on 676 and mm-hmm. the tear gas was being fired, I blew that photo up and counted the black people. Because mm. I just was like, wait, there's, wait, I'm like, this is a protest about police brutality on a black dude. And I'm like counting them like specks at like a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert or something, right? And you're like, it's crazy that there are that few black people protesting police brutality, which mainly affects disproportionately black people. So it was like, okay. Like that was another thing I just mentally, I was like, man, that's awesome. I'm trying to unpack like what's going on there too. Like that's, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so, you know, but it's just like, it was just different for me. Yeah. And that's something like there were like Tanasi Coates was sort of like talking to his elders and they were saying, that's the difference, right? That it isn't just a bunch of black people in their own neighborhood trying to be heard, right? It's all these white folks and in other countries, right? There's nobody protesting in Sweden during the civil rights movement, right? (laughs) So that, that is definitely a distinction. And again, not to put too fine a point on it, those white folks are out of work too, <laughs> right? Not all of them. Yeah. I actually know some of, the, some, some of the people I work with and like some people I work, I've worked with in the past were there too. So like some, uh, some employed white folks were there. But yeah. like once you start, when I talk to Michael O'Brien about this, he talks about this notion of like trying to um, spread, around, spread around and distribute whiteness, Right. As a sort of way of talking about like economic factors and like how you try to like, you know, keep the middle class happy and stuff like that. And as we talked about it, we were talking about how like recently millennials, Gen Z are making less money than their parents did for the first time in generations. Right. That generational wealth isn't being passed down, which for black folks isn't as uncommon, (laughs) but for white folks is kind of (laughs) new. And it's sort of like, again, you've got this reason for unrest that maybe wasn't there so much back during uh, the 60s. Yeah, man. Like, I, I don't know. That's what I said. You asked me what was on my mind. Like, you know, I, I'm, my mind's yeah. always going on stuff. And I'm just thinking about these things. Like, what, you know, you're like, what happened? Like, what happened this time? Like, it's different. And I'm glad it's different. And I'm glad more people care. And I think it's stuck a lot more than like a Rodney King. Or like, you think about the first time you saw somebody get their ass whooped on TV by the cops, like Rodney King. And you're like, okay, that went on. And then we had people burning stuff and looting and all that. But it just didn't feel like it stuck as well. I mean, like, this really feels like it's here to stay. So I'm happy for it. But I'm just trying to figure out, you know, if you don't understand what made it spark and, and sticks, then you can't replicate it. So that's yeah. why it's been on my mind a lot. Yeah. And I'm going to hit one last thing on this, and we're going to move on. But, but what it also reminds me of, especially to point out, like, how many white folks were there as opposed to black folks. I remember when Trump first got elected, right? It's 2016. I'm freaking out. Do I move to Canada? All that shit. And my prediction was, uh, for the next four years, we're all just going to go to our corners and hide, right? And nobody's going to talk to each other. And this, this came after, like, that. Remember the Thanksgiving in 2016? <laughs> The most awkward Thanksgiving in, in history, right? Where everybody like would turn off the TV if they're listening to Fox News and somebody walked by, right? Like everybody would just go to their corner. But then when the Muslim ban came out and all these people went to the airport, right? All over the country. Yeah. There were not nearly enough Muslims in this country for that to be the number of people who were going to airports. There were people who literally had no skin in the game who were showing up and saying it was the opposite of the whole trope of, well, first they came for whoever and I didn't say anything. It's no, first they came for the Muslims. And I said, fuck no, I'm going to the airport. Right. So that to me was like, when I realized, okay, this is, this isn't going to be us people. This isn't going to be us laying down. This is going to be a fight. I don't know how the fight's going to go, 
but this is going to be a fight and it's going to be a fight where people who aren't whose interests aren't immediately threatened are still going to show up so that th- this feels like a reflection of that to me yeah yeah it's, it's it's an interesting time man for sure it's an interesting time so one of the things i wanted to definitely tackle while we're, we're, we're talking here you know because you've obviously spent a lot of time in digital marketing in particular around seo and one of the things i've never completely been able to get my head around is like is SEO a bias-free zone because it is so driven by algorithms or are those algorithms inheriting some kind of bias? Like when you think about that work and that side of your business, like, is that something where you see bias entering in somehow? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There's tons of bias, tons. Mm -hmm. I mean, an algorithm is just a series of weights programmed by a person, by a person usually. So whatever biases I have are going to inherently be, included in the uh the tools that surface information so i'm i you know i I would say from a from a search standpoint there's just tons and tons and tons of bias you also have a business model that's going to bias what google shows Mm. right um you also but you and i don't mean that in a bad way like google um but they have to make money right Mm -hmm. Um, and they have to keep their shareholders happy and all that stuff so then there's certain things that they're going to bias towards i think they've done it so something i decided to do um is take a bunch of mail-in ballot votes and like where's my like locations and poll locations words and I have them running across 107 different zip codes in the U.S. and I'm tracking to see what is ranking in different cities and states so I can see if there's any like people trying to fake tell people when there are certain things and one of the things that Google did that was right is I can't find a snippet that's like oh the voting day is this day or oh your polling place is here and I'm thinking that Google's removing singular answers because very often people don't validate singular answers they just assume it's right so that's been the most interesting thing is i couldn't find a rich snippet across anywhere on google for like you know ballot ballot mail-in ballot box near me like google should be like oh it's right here like they do that on so many other queries but for some reason on these voting queries they don't have it so that's a data set i wish i had more time to play around with but every week i'm bringing in the data to try to see are people subverting who ranks at the top of Google mm-hmm. to try to get people to go to the wrong place or give them wrong information so then their vote doesn't count by, by 107 different zip codes across the U.S.? So that's really interesting. Do you think that is a matter of Google actively going in and removing the false information, or is it just like a feature they've turned off so that you don't just get one answer at the top? Well, Google doesn't fix shit manually. Okay. Like everything's <laughs> got to be fixed at, at, the, at scale. Okay. So I would imagine they – dialed down that across everything versus picking out individual ones. The only time you see them pick out individual stuff um, I've ever seen it in in the last like five or six years was in payday loans where Mm. like the algorithms were allowing too much stuff to still get through and people were figuring out how to get around it. So then they, at some point look, it looked like they had hand edited that, that result for payday loans, but that's like one in like six years. And that's gotta be a tough challenge. I was talking last week with, with Margot Stern, who, who at the time was at Facebook and talking about how in her work, they were what they were discovering was that the more something gets shared, the more likely it is to be false information. <laughs> right? So, yeah. So that's going to be a pretty, a pretty decent challenge there. So, so what, what, so what are some ways or some other ways that you've, you've noticed or seen where bias is entering in or where someone has, you know, weighted the algorithm in the way that, that their bias is showing? Well, you know, even like if you listen to a lot of hip hop, you know, there are a lot of songs that have words in them 
uh, in their titles that are not politically correct, quote unquote, I guess, whatever people want to say. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting when you use devices like Alexa and you try to drop, you know, oh, I want to listen to Wu-Tang Clan, shame on a nigga. And it's like, "Mm, I'm not going to, I don't know what to do. Uh, mm." And then how do I repeat it back to you? Because even though I'm not, it's like, you know, the, the, the tool is like, I'm not white or black, so I'm not. Am, am I, am I, am I, if I say it back to you, am I racist? Right. So you have a whole thing. And, and there's a lot of songs that I like, like, like Nipsey Hussle's got a lot of songs with the N word in it, in the title. And, you know, Meek Mill's got a couple too. And then when you go to say, play it back, it's funny to watch the different voice devices be like, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. Let me tell you what's really funny about that. Different experience, right. Different experience. Yeah. And, the, and the people who programmed these things in the beginning, weren't thinking about that. And then they kind of succumb to pressure. So even when Google was matching people's uh, black people's faces with the algorithm and photos, sometimes in rare occasions to like primates, monkeys, whatever, you know, people are like, Google's bad. And you're like, it's a, it's, it's like me saying Alexa's bad because she repeated back the N word to me in a song that I asked for. Like, you know, if I said, if I said somebody looked like a giraffe or like, or, or like a toucan, they'd be like, oh, that's funny. But if you say it this side, it's like, I don't know. And it's like, it's really hairy real quick on like racial lines. But it's like mm-hmm. some people look like animals. You ever seen somebody looks like their dog? Like, oh, you look like your dog, dog. Like, you look like your dog. Like, I should be able to say that. So then people get very like, Google's bad, Google's bad. And it's like, I think that's a fine line as well. Mm. Um, oh, what I was going to say was that. So I was experimenting with playing music at the beginning when people walk in. And one of the things I was going to play was um, Shimmy Shimmy Ya. And on that mix, the very next song is Shame on a Nigga. So I was like, oh, maybe I won't play that one. <laughs> I love that song, actually. No, it's a great song, look how, right? Look how much we're here. Right, bro? You're like, man, I was just thinking about that song. I was like, me too. Um, and just to be 100% clear to those of you who are going to be listening to this as a podcast, both Will and I are black. <laughs> If I wasn't, like, come at me, though. It's like, it's yeah. the name of a damn song. Like, what am I supposed to say? Like, yeah. Like, well, and that's actually kind of an, an interesting, like, way to try to, to, to pass that test, right? It's like, Alexa is neither white nor black, but she's also not black, or she, I'm calling her she, right? Alexa is not black. And maybe if that's the, the line you have to cross before you get, you know, any kind of permissions around the word, maybe that's why Alexa doesn't get to say it. <laughs> Until, this is, a, until this is an interesting black. conversation, right? <laughs> this is an interesting conversation. Right. So, I, mean, I mean, if you do the Samuel L. Jackson voices now, is Alexa now black, oh, right? Like, it's, and, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I do not want to go down this rabbit okay, hole. No, that's fair. That's fair. But I'm telling you, like, now I'm wondering, like, would I be disappointed if he didn't use the N-word <laughs> as Alexa? And <laughs> like, oh, this isn't authentic. Oh, right. right? If you, oh Jesus! Like, like I said, this is nothing but a bad slippery slope. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, but, but, but to that point, like I feel like this is, and a lot of what this series is about is sort of realizing, okay, we're. I'm talking to sort of like tech leaders, designers, right? And, and my book is about design, and we don't think that dealing with hard tech, like an SEO, which is all about algorithms and numbers and math, you ever have to think about things like can an automated Sam Jackson use the N-word without offending anybody? You wouldn't think that that is a thing that you need to be prepared to talk about in tech, but you kind of do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This stuff pops up in weird ways. Like, uh, you know, they were finding that uh, Black people were more likely to be hit by self-driving cars because of the machine learning, the, the, the set of people that they started with. 
didn't reflect certain skin tones. You're like, oh, wow, okay, like this stuff actually has real world impact. Yeah, and this, by the way, have you ever watched the um, Better Off Ted episode with the, uh, the lights that turned off when white people left the room? Ah, no, but I did see one that was like, uh, uh, get the soap under the, the yeah. dryer or whatever, and it couldn't fix it. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm just going right? like, to recommend everybody find, I think it's called like uh, Diversity Day or something, but everybody find that episode on, on YouTube. It is hilarious, but it, it's one of the best satires of sort of race relations in the office. But it all starts on the exact same premise of all the automated stuff in the office can't see black people and therefore does not work for them. So on your website, uh, it says uh, in big letters on the SEER website, like we don't trust our gut. And in tech, that's a sort of like finicky word, right? Because some people are like, oh yeah, like tech bros, we got to trust our intuition and like, you know, move fast and break things. And other folks are like, maybe trusting our gut is kind of what got us into this mess in the first place. So I'm curious why you chose or why SEER chose those words to sort of like lead with on the, on our homepage. All right. That'll be slightly worse, but I, but it's, okay. <laughs> at least I'll fall in and out. It's my second, um, my second backup mic. So uh, I'll try to get close to it. Um, but I realized how wrong I was about things um, in, you know, my 21 years of experience, blah, 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 doing search every day. And, and it's interesting when somebody challenges your expertise. So I started looking for the data. Uh, so one of my team members challenged me on a way that I was doing something. Uh, and, he had all this data on the back end, and I had the way that I've always done things, right? Which wasn't non-data driven. It was just like a lot of gut, a lot of intuition, a lot of search for this and find this and find that. And you find that people are like, they want that from me, right? They want that, like, well, you've been doing this for 20 years. Like, give me what you think. And when I got beat by a computer on something that, you know, people fly me all over the world and I talk about all this stuff and I got all my speaker ratings and I get invited back multiple times in the same conference. So I got data that says, I'm well recognized for doing like keyword research and things like that. And somebody beats me in a half hour with a computer program over what I'm doing. I needed to figure out like, man, like I need to switch and pivot. And I think the most powerful thing for me right now is not having 21 years of experience doing search. It's the fact that I don't rely on 21 years of experience doing search. So I don't fall for the same bullshit that a lot of people as they gain expertise are going to fall for because I've got the data that consistently invalidates what my gut would have told me was the right thing. So how do you, how do you keep that up or how has that changed how you think about making decisions? Or do you have to sort of like have a part of your practice now being like checking against the data rather than just going with your gut? It's funny. I, I think this is broad based, like everything now with so much news and stuff coming at us. I don't care if it's right, left, whatever. I'm always thinking like, what's, what does this person want me to believe? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, what do they want me to believe? Um, I oftentimes find myself trying to look for, I hate to even say like, I'm becoming contrarian because it's not really my MO, but I'm, I I think so. Actually, I have this book here, right? The, The Upside of Stress. I loved this book because what it talks about is starting from a place of bias. So um, when Kelly McGonigal, who wrote it, she had spent like 15 years of her life starting from a place of stress is bad. So then everything she researched started from that place, which is just another type of bias. So when she said, well, let me start from understanding stress from a place where maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. And then she writes this whole book on the upside of stress. And then a lot of things in the book just make a ton of sense. 
Um, it was that book. And then it was the other one was Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. My God, that book was transformational for me because the whole time I'm reading it, I'm constantly checking myself on my own bullshit. I wasn't looking out at the world and reading this book and being like, these people are idiots. It was like, oh my God, where do I do that to myself? And the, the story they opened up with was 1850 Ergon, Ergon Semmelweis was the doctor's name who uh, was like, hey, we should wash our hands in between procedures in the medical profession. And people fought this guy for like 20 years on his research. So they kept not washing their hands. And he eventually went insane and went into an insane asylum. And because he's like, I can't believe people aren't willing to wash their hands to save people's lives. And what ultimately the book goes through is doctors had to admit to themselves that they were killing people to believe his research was right. Mm. So it was easier to say his research is wrong and find flaws in his research, which had no downside to washing your hands. Worst case scenario, nothing good happens. Nothing bad happens either. But people fought him on that. And it's like, man, like, where do I fight things that I want to believe or fight for things I want to believe in the face of the data being what it is? And like, for me, that book is just transformational, transformational in and asking yourself, where am I falling for that bullshit myself? So say the title of that book again. Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And, and who is it by? Oh, I forget. I forget her name. Okay. i have somebody like send it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure folks listening on the podcast can get, get a hold of that. I mean, I think that's what that reminds me of. And I don't know if it's the same thing going on, but like people not wearing their mask, right? Because yeah, as, a, as an action to take, it is not like really that big of an ask but it seems like something more than i don't want to wear a mask is at work when people say they don't want to wear a mask right <laughs> that there's something that they'd have to admit by wearing the mask and that and i think that's what we mean when we say like science has become politicized right wearing a mask is now a political act but it's only that <laughs> because of something like i don't know that scientists are right whatever it is that you somehow have to admit by if you in fact wear a mask it's to me, it's nuts. Like, I'm sitting here with my mask because I wear it back and forth on my way uh, walking to work. And I'm one of those, like, you know, like, the. I, it's funny. You know what's interesting? We listen to science when it, when it validates what we want to believe. And I, think, and I think we all need to find our own way to work ourselves out of that mentality, right? So when the science comes out and says masks work, like, who are we to say no? Like, because there's always going to be a study. I think that's where we also are, is we always are now looking for the, oh, there's a study that says it doesn't do this or that. And it's like, but what's the freaking problem, bro? Like, where the damn, like, like <laughs> wear it, you know? So I, that's another thing I just don't understand because it's like, I'd rather die or hurt other people around me than wear this thing over my face. And it's like, for what, like, what's the upside? <laughs> what's the upside of that, right? Yeah. I can't see one that's big enough for me to put on a mask and just keep, keep it moving. Yeah, and, I, and I, it reminds me, so uh, Mike Montero, um, hi Mike, um, wrote a book recently I really enjoyed um, called Ruined by Design. And one of the things he points to, and I think this is an Upton Sinclair quote, but basically it's something along the lines of, you know, it is impossible to convince somebody of something when their job depends on them not believing it, right? And so in this case, you know, for the doctors, it wasn't their jobs depending on that, but their egos. <laughs> and I feel like that's a little bit with the mask too, but like, there's some kind of resistance where my identity is going to be challenged if I accept what you say. 
Yeah, you know, it's exactly the same thing I was talking about with like the expertise concept, right? I mm. think that's my superpowers. If I can let go of 20 years of experience and accept there's a new way, that's a win because I know that 90% of people are going to double down on like, well, my experience. I'm like, well, then you'll just be ultimately potentially wrong or we'll see who wins at the end. But that's literally why I, I started talking about that earlier is I'm realizing that letting go of your expertise and being open to very different ways of thinking about things is a huge potential victory if you can get there. But it's so hard to look at a body of work over 20 years or 15 years or 10 years of something that's giving you that ego hit, right? Like those years of like flying places and having people rate you high and standing applause and all that stuff. All that stuff just keeps telling you, you're the shit, man. You're the shit. You know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. And then to someday go, no, I'm not. Actually, I've stood on stage and told people what I told you last year was wrong. Right. It's like I have found new information that said all that stuff you thought I was great on. I was the top rated speaker. Yeah, I, I, that works in like three percent of instances. I just so happen to show you the three percent. So the other 97 percent of you shouldn't have done that, you know, um, but you got to be open to that. And that's a, that's a pretty big pill to swallow in front of uh, your peers to be able to say, yeah, that stuff I told you might not work. Yeah. And that, I mean, we, we, we should keep talking because like I am, you know, trying to do more and more speaking. And as I do that, I fear falling into that trap. But what I've found historically is when I do accept, oh yeah, I totally had that wrong. The thing I learn is so much better. Like writing this book, there's a lot of things where I'm like, oh, I thought the study said this. It totally doesn't say that. Oh, but the thing it does say is actually way more interesting. Let me learn more about that. Right. Um, and so I don't know, like, I feel like but what it's reminding me of is the whole like fixed mindset versus growth mindset thing, right? Where it's a sort of like, if you try to look at the world as like, there was good and bad, there is smart and dumb, there is I am this or I am that, and that's it versus, okay, I am here, I could eventually be there, or I am changing and change is good, right? Like, I feel like for me anyway, I found life much richer as I move more into that growth mindset area <laughs> than, than trying to like you know, be at the top of my game and then like rely on that. Well, you know, it's, it, there's been a lot of things I've done at Sear where I realized I was asking people to also let go of their expertise. Mm. And like, that's really hard. Like mm. it's, cause for me, it was easy. I think, you know, it's just another bias mm. for me. It's easy to let go of that expertise. And maybe it's cause it's at the juncture that I'm at in my career. Where I'm like, okay, I've been good enough. Like I, I can, but like, you know, we would show people stuff internally with these machines. And I'm like, well, if I can do it and let go, like, you know, like you can too. And it's like, that's really hard. I, I've realized and learned to have more empathy for, for that, you know, like that it's, it's hard to look at the work you've done and poured a lot of work into and have somebody click three buttons and destroy you. Right. And be like, damn. And then you have to admit like, damn, that's, that actually is better. Or do you like just double down and find a way to like invalidate it. Right. Which doesn't ultimately usually work out very well for people like that. Yeah. And it's the whole, like, it's better to be, um, you know, good than right or whatever it is. But like that, that, um, I mean, what I'm reminded of is, uh, I recently watched a documentary uh, about Bruce Lee called Be Water. And the, it's fantastic, by the way, if you can, it's just, if you can get your hands on it. But, um, but one of the things, like the title comes from this notion of like, you know, water is like the softest substance on earth yet it can break the hardest substance on earth. And mm. the form of every painter that it's in, and yet it has this mat, you know. But that being formless, like I mean, this gets very Eastern religion very quickly. But I think for good reason, uh, and that's not a way I think we're used to thinking about tech. We're used to thinking about career. We're used to thinking about capitalism. All that good stuff. 
that's an interesting one though. Ooh, that's deep. Like I got to stop and think about that one. That's deep. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look up, look up, uh, be water. It's really, it's really good. We'll do. Uh, so I'm going to encourage folks to, um, start typing questions into the, uh, the chat here. Uh, Mike was very nice enough to give us the actual quote from Upton Sinclair. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Um, and I like the use of word salary there because we're getting back to what the money part. <laughs> That's Ooh. really driving a lot of this. Um, That's good. Yeah. That's really good. So, That's... no, go there, ahead. There you go. Okay. So I was going to say, one of the things I also wanted to, to kind of talk about, something you, you posted about this a while back, but um, so as black men in tech or just in the world, um, one of the things that, you know, we may have a higher likelihood of encountering is the actual technology may be treating us differently. Um, and you had an encounter on, on Airbnb or an, an engagement with that, that I think is very um, illustrative of that. If you want to kind of tell that story real quick, and we can chat a bit about that. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was Airbnb while black, baby. Um, you know, uh, one of the great things about having a, having an assistant who's white and a wife who's white is I get to um, find out racist stuff by being like, hey, sweetie, like, I just got told that I can't, you know, that, oh, this place is booked. Like, can you go try to book it? And then, you know, your wife tries to book it or your assistant tries to book it. And they're like, yay, we can't wait to have you. You're like, that's some bullshit. Like, that is some bullshit. Right. Um, so it's like the perfect AD test, right? <laughs> it, it is. It's like, oh, it wasn't available for me in, oh, uh, uh, three days ago, and it's available for my wife now. Wonder what's up with that. Um, but um, what I will, what I'll say is, I think the more important, the more interesting thing was how it was the first time I caught myself. I'm constantly in self-reflection, dude. Like I'm always like, just like constantly reflecting on shit that comes out of my mouth. And it was the first time I saw myself kind of giving somebody clues that I wasn't your average Negro, right? Because I'm like, oh, when my nanny comes and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, did I seed in things to be like, oh, I'm not like the person that you're afraid to probably rent to, right? And I was like, fuck, did I just, did I, did I do that? And is that not cool? Is it cool? Is it self-preservation? Like, I had a, I had a whole, like, just, like, moment there with myself. Like, what did you just do, dog? Like, why'd you write that that way? You know what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, that was, that was, that was interesting. That was an interesting reflection point for me. Um, just on, on, like, why did I do that? And what was I trying to accomplish? And yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and I feel like it, it forces us to think about how we use our blackness, Right. And how we engage with it. Cause one of the things, so this is one of the moments about like learning stuff, like, like thinking you knew something and you like, you kind of had it wrong. So one of the studies I was looking at was around um, people who whitened their resumes. And it's this idea of like removing anything that would identify you as black in your resume. And I, the thing I had wrong was the numbers. And I kind of studied the, like really read the study more deeply. And what I found out was uh, it was actually worse than I thought. <laughs> so, so this was this was a study of uh, black and Asian applicants for different jobs uh, across lots of different companies, many of whom explicitly said, oh, yeah, we like a diverse workforce. Um, and what they found was for Asians who whitened their resume, they were twice as likely to get callbacks. And for black people who whitened their resumes, they were two and a half times more likely to get callbacks. And... Where that puts me is I'll give talks and at the end, and I'll, I'll talk about like this stuff. And at the end of the talk, people will be like basically one version or another of should I whiten my resume? 
And it's like, well, <laughs> there's the statistical answer, which is absolutely. If, if your goal is to get the job, then your odds will improve if you whiten your resume. Like, I can't tell you that's not true. The science, the data says it's true. The moral-ish quandary then becomes, A, do you want to work somewhere that doesn't want you to be you, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Uh, and, and B, like, is that, how is that going to, how is that going to affect your relationship with your blackness or with your Asian-ness? And, yeah. I, and there is no clear answer. And that's a, that is an answer. I mean, the whole other power and wealth come into that too, right? Because mm -hmm. if it's like, hey, I got a pretty comfortable job. I'm just looking around for something a little better. That's a very different job position than rents do. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yep. yeah, it gets really gnarly really quick. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting, bro. That's all I can say. Right. I think this whole moment that we're in, like, it just calls me to reflect on why I do certain things. Right. Like, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's just something, something else to think about. Right. I think luckily I don't care. I have the least black experience from what I hear other black men go through. I'm like, I, I've been, I've driven across this country. I've been to Selma, Alabama. I've driven through Mississippi. I've driven through all kinds of places on my drives through Texas, at least five times driving across country to our office in San Diego. I get pulled over all the time. I'm always treated with complete respect. Like, like I've never had a problem. I've been pulled over in Virginia, Iowa, freaking you name it. I've been pulled over in this, in this state. I've never had a bad run in with the cops, you know, but I think, um, I recognize that other people freaking do. Right. When you think about, bias it's like i think that's one thing that's been really interesting for me is i keep hearing all these things but then i'm like and it seems like everybody that's the other thing that's interesting is people just assume they're like well will you know what it's like when the, the cops i'm like no nah, dog like like i don't i i've never yeah. been pulled over by the cops and treated unfairly uh so you know it's just like it, it, man i think black as a group is just too big. There's a yeah. lot of experiences within black that can make different people have very different experiences. So I put that out on Facebook. So I'm like, any other brothers out there not have this fucking cops whipping on your ass thing? Like, because I keep hearing and like people keep coming to me just being like, well, you know, and I'm like, I don't know. Like that has not happened to me. That is not part of my experience. Yeah. So I'm just realizing like, and then also like in the workforce, Mm -hmm. In terms of like racism in the workforce, you know, I'm realizing that I, I don't know much about that because I bailed on work in the traditional sense when I was 25 or 24, or 25 and started Sears. So therefore, maybe I've missed out on a whole set of baggage that black people who even try to come into my company may have experienced. So I need to be aware that like my experience may not, even though I'm black, may not be <laughs> their experience and i'm realizing that black as a group is broad man people have very different experiences it's oh man it's crazy like um so my, my, my dad's from ethiopia and he'll tell me about like you think like there, there's a diversity of blackness in america like there's white people who are black in ethiopia right <laughs> like blue blue eyes blonde hair and they're black and if you go to ethiopia as a black man but you're from america you're going to be called white. <laughs> there is a word in Amharic that essentially means white, and it's used to refer to people who are not from Ethiopia or basically not African, right? So I, I agree. Like one of my favorite books is uh, How to Be Black by Baratunde Thurston. And he does a great job of basically making that point. It's like there are so many ways to be black and people don't oh get my God. 
it's it's like even like I mean, I don't know if you had this in your upbringing, but you know, my parents were like, "You're going to school, you're doing well in school," yada yada yada. Sent me to private schools and all that shit. So, and I did decently well in school. And it's like, you know, the idea of like, you know, you're. You're black, so the school system wasn't good. I'm like, nah, that wasn't my experience. Like, my parents sent me. But then I went to places where, because I was from a black town, it was like, you're not black enough. So then you always, like, I'm so glad that my parents were very like, no, you keep speaking the way you speak. And if people say that you're not black enough, then tough shit for them. Um, they're like, you're going to have more doors open to you by, by doing this than not, by trying to placate these friends of yours. But, like, that concept is real as shit, too. Like, the, like colorism and all that stuff, that is just so real that it's just another area of like black isn't because if you're because it's not like you're black or you're not because even within your own group you might not be black enough yeah right that, that actually was my first experience with like people tell stories about when did you know you were black right and the the moment for me I, again based on that irony is i talk the way i talk this is the way my mom talked and my mother was very very strict about education um and I would go to school. There's like third, fourth grade. I would go to school and the other black kids were like, why are you talking white? And that was one of the first moments where I was like, I might be black. <laughs> like there might be this thing called being black that I had just would, would, did, did not register before because everyone around me was black. And like, why? This is the way it is. Right. So that and, and again, to your to your to your experience, like generally speaking, my run ins with cops have been uh, at least medium, if not fine. Right. Uh, I had one cop follow me around once for no good reason, and he got a good talking to by my white friend, so that kind of went away. <laughs> but but I've yeah. never had I've had the beatdown, right? But at the same time, I am I am terrified of cops, and I'll tell you why. Because I know because of the experience of all these things, I can be like I remember distinctly I was walking around Philadelphia back when you could do that. I was walking around Philadelphia, and there was a like just a white cop standing on the corner, just minding his own business, and the thought that hit me. And this is like in the milieu of all the stuff that's happened. The thought that hit me was, if that guy wanted to, he could kill you. And the worst he'd have to worry about is getting suspended. Uh, You know what, bro? Like, man, it's so funny you say that because I'm a a relatively strong supporter of police, policing, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not like one of those people that's like, get rid of them. But dude, the day I saw the George Floyd video, I played Fuck the Police for the first time since I was about 16. And I played it six times while I took a shower because I just felt so powerless about what was happening. That The only thing I could do was play NWA, Fuck the Police, and just, I think it might have been Ice Cube, I don't remember. But like, uh, it, I was like, I haven't played this song since I was like 16. Like, I felt just so powerless, the only thing I could think of. And I'm not that guy. Like, I think one of the things, and I I guess it's my own bias, right? But I'm not that guy. So therefore, when I feel certain ways, I'm like, ooh, ooh, there's something there. Because generally, you try to see, I'm a both-siders, right? I'm like, oh, well, you know, everybody's not bad, and nobody's all good, and blah, blah, blah. But then when I'm like, yo, fuck these police, man. And the only thing I can think of saying is fuck the police. And singing that song while I take my shower that morning was just like, man, there's something really there. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we talk about this thing you did recently that really struck me. What I do, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, first let me ask you if you remember this. So we did an episode of Dunk Donuts with Dave like two, three years ago. And we were chatting afterwards about like 
how difficult it is to say like, and this was literally the conversation. Um, if you're working in a company like a tech company and how tech, tech companies, like if you, you know, work there, you get all these perks, like you know, the gym and you get good benefits and blah, blah, blah. But if you clean up that tech company, you probably don't get any of that because you're not working for the tech company, you're working for some third party and like, they're going to get you what they give you, which is probably not going to be much. Recently, I heard you basically made the folks who do the custodial work at SEER full-time employees. Is that right? Yep. So talk about that journey because that's, to me, is like a very big deal. <laughs> to me, it's just the right fucking thing to do, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but this is another thing. Like, it's why I'm constantly on this, like, journey of just, like, learning more shit. I'm always trying to learn more because there was a New York Times article where somebody outlined a woman who is – who was a CTO at Kodak who started off as a janitor Mm. in Kodak and took advantage of their benefits versus a woman who was a janitor at uh, a custodian at, um, at Apple. And they showed their lifetime like trajectories. And it's like, well, Apple outsources those efforts. So when you hear about all these wonderful things that Google and Apple and Facebook do for their employees, they're trying to keep the number of employees as small as possible and outsource all the other stuff, building security in these areas, in these roles where there might be more black and brown people, people from underrepresented groups, people that don't have the same amount of money, background, education. Those are the people who it's a rounding error for them. Like make those people, give those people a chance to also eat at your cafeterias to take advantage of your, um, student loan stuff, take advantage of your tuition reimbursement. It's like, that's a rounding error for you guys. Like, and we could really change things, you know? So when I see these companies posting their black squares and shit or saying like, you know, Zuckerberg, oh, that's what we're going to do for black this or that. I'm like, why don't you start by saying, where are there the most black people on campus? Shocker. They're all fucking contractors whose benefits are for somebody else through somebody else. Like, why don't you make them employees? They don't cost that much because you have them in roles that aren't the most expensive roles. So why don't you turn them into employees so that they can change the generational path that they are on? So for me, it was a no-brainer, man. It was just like, do the right thing, bro. Like, come on. Like, if I got, if I look at my bank account, I got the money to do it. Why would I not do that? If I don't have the money to do it, then I shouldn't, you know? But to me, it was, and you know what's crazy is um, to watch a person break down in tears in front of you, a grown-ass woman break down in tears in front of you because she now has benefits. So the story that's crazy is her son owns the company that she worked in doing our office. Really? The son was like, dude, I could never give this to my mom. Mm. Like here, please take it. Right. And then my fucking team, that's why I love my fucking team. My team wrote her offer in Spanish because she doesn't really, uh, her English isn't great. Somebody somewhere, probably Crystal, um, was like, we're going to write her offer in Spanish too to make sure she understands all our benefits, that she can take full advantage of them, yada, yada, yada. And I was just like, I work with the right motherfuckers. You know, like that's one of those moments when you're running a business and it's growing and yada, 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 where you're like, I'm working with the right fucking people because I wasn't thinking of that. Right. Right. And somebody was like, no, we really want to make sure she understands our benefits. I mean, my wife was doing translations for her in real time on the call and her English is decent, but they wanted to make sure that she really knew that we want you to take advantage of all these things. Um, you know, we figured out stuff like we have unlimited vacation, right? So it's like, well, what's going to happen to the office? Like we'll figure it out. Right. Um, so no, I think it's just the right thing to do, man. It's not even, it's just humane. If you got the, if you got the dollars to do it, like 
do it. But it was, it was crazy to have somebody literally like, like, you know, uh, uh, that emotional over what that means for them. And for us, it was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's easy to do. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, what you say about the generational wealth is true. I mean, I feel like that's, and that was something I, I, I hadn't gotten my head around yet. I was talking to Sylvester Mobley about this the other day and he was trying to talk about, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of black generational wealth that just doesn't stick around. Um, and um, Killer Mike uh, on the first episode of his uh, Netflix show was like, yeah, he was showing the stats around how long a white dollar stays in the white community, how long an Asian dollar stays in the Asian community and how long a black dollar stays in the black community. And the black dollar is like, I'm making a little like very tiny, tiny smiling <laughs> yeah. with my fingers for those of you on the podcast. Uh, it's not long. Um, so, but, it, but we forget that those, some of those things are policy. Some of those things are the way America works, but some of those ways are just inherited wisdom for corporations for like, oh no, you never like uh, hire your custodial team. You outsource it. You outsource as much as yep. you can, right? Of course you do. Yep. No, I, I, you know, I think that's the thing too. It's like, I don't come at people like you're bad, right? It's not like you're bad. It's like, maybe you never knew. Like I, I wasn't doing that, but I had to read an article that challenged my thinking and be like, wait a second, this should be doable. So let's do it. And I'm just a big believer in the impact of one person Mm. because like I'm here on this podcast because somewhere in my dad's life, somebody kept his nose clean long enough to get him out of the fucking hood. Mm. Like, I don't know who it was, but like somebody kept my dad's nose clean long enough to get him into the air force. The minute he turned 18, cause he had the upbringing of a person like, you know, it's like three brothers. Everybody had different fathers. Like my dad met his dad, like, you know, a handful of times his whole life. Two of his brothers died of drug overdoses. His mom died of cirrhosis from drinking herself to death. Like, so my dad grew up in that upbringing where why wasn't he just like everybody else around him? Like that was the family. That was his family unit. Right. All my uncles are on that side are dead, drug overdoses and shit. And like up in North Philly. And you're like, how did he get out of that? And you're like somewhere somebody gave him a little bit of a crack in an opening that he walked through. And he then said, I'm getting the air force. I'm getting the fuck out of, out of North Philly. And it put him on a trajectory to have me. So I always feel like um, if I can do something right in, in, in societally, like it may not be that person that goes on to become the next fucking whatever, but like their kid could become me because somewhere somebody put that time into my dad to turn to, to, to put me in the position that I'm in, you know? So I'm like, shit, I got to do something about that. I can't just like, you know, uh, I can't let that one ride. I got to try to do something. So I'm always in the mentality of, man, like if I just work with that one youth, that one kid. So like this week, I spent like four hours talking to different kids about their businesses and stuff that's going on in their lives and whatnot through HopeWorks. Um, because like, I just believe that like my dad had one of those. My dad had one of those. So I got to do my part too. Yeah, I think that's something people underestimate. It's been a theme throughout this this series is that like never underestimate small actions, right? Like just as we say like, hey, watch out for those little moments of bias because they might hurt somebody down the line. By the same token, like those moments of grace that you're able to impart, right? Even those small things, you may feel powerless right now, but you have no idea who you're affecting. You totally, man. That's why I said, you know, I, I was like, as, as soon as this George Floyd stuff popped off, you know, it's funny to have a bunch of people in your company be like, why aren't you like talking more about it, you know? I mean, first of all, I don't need to say that my life matters. Like, I'm only talking to a black CEO, so let's fucking get real here. Because, um, you know, you got, like, you got, like, little, I mean, honestly, you got, like, little, little white kids being like, yo, why aren't you saying something? It's like, I'm doing stuff. 
Yeah. Right. Like I don't, I don't like, you know, I, like let's go do something to change this thing. Let's not post black squares. And then that lets our company off the hook. Right. I was like, we got to put in the work. So, you know, but it's so interesting, like being raised by a dad who came from the hood. One of the worst biases I have is about work. Like it's crazy, dude. But like, like my focus on like, and I don't want to be all like hustle culture-y, but like my idea on like work harder, like beat people at shit, yada, 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 is just not how people are wired today. So I realized as a CEO, even I'm a bad pace setter in my own company because people need to take breaks and stuff like that. And I don't really get energy off of taking breaks. And it's because my dad, my dad is 76. He Missed hanging out with my kids last weekend because he was like, I got to mow these three lawns this week. So-and-so is paying me 50 bucks. And I was like, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm having a shed built in your backyard next week. <laughs> like, like, we have, like, you don't need, but it's just all I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've had to learn is, like, but people don't understand where I come from, right? So, like, people will just be like, oh, well, was always working, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, my version of all, your version of seeing me always working is my dad thinking I'm lazy. Yeah. Like, my dad had a rule. If he came over one of my rental houses and had to do a project and I didn't work with him, I had to pay him 50 bucks an hour. If I worked with him, it was free. My dad is like an old school hustler, man. Like, that guy is always, like, working, always trying to make a buck. So, you know, I need to even find my own ways when I'm working with a team in this environment to try to like remind people to take breaks mm-hmm. and, and, you know, take care of themselves because like my old man, I'm like, he grew up in a way that was like, no, nah, you ain't taking no breaks, boy. Oh man. All right. That's, that, that, that's a good story to end on. Run out of time. I, I could talk to you for another, another hour and, and, and we may have a while, bro. Time. But um, thank you so much uh, for coming. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, I'm going to put a little thing in the chat here, and that's going to be next week's. So next week, we're going to talk to Margot Bloomstein, a wonderful content strategist who's got a new book coming out about trust. Um, Will, it's been fantastic. Thank you for telling us your stories. Thank you for uh, sharing all this with us. It's been great, man. Dude, thanks for your podcast, bro. I remember the first like time like, I downloaded a bunch of them because I just love understanding bias. I was like, oh shit, I know this guy. Like it was one of those moments. Have you ever seen something that's dope? And then you're listening to it. You're like, wait, I know the guy. I know that guy. Like I can like talk to him and stuff. Like I can text him. So, um, man, I love, I I think that, uh, I actually love the podcast, man. Like I loved the, uh, all the first, like the first season you did, whatever. I just remember like downloading a bunch of them on a cross country drive and making my wife listen to them just because it made us think about things differently. You know, and when you're driving in a car for 12 hours a day, you, you want to try to fill the time. So, man, no, thank you for having me. And thanks for the work you put in. Appreciate you. Awesome, man. All right. For the uh, much appreciated for the, for the, for the Cognitive Bias podcast, I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Later.